Amen. Well, we did it. We read through every word in the book of Philippians together. So that is a, that's a gift. Let's, uh, before we dig into our text today, take some time to go to our God in prayer. Let's pray. Well, Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness to us. We thank you for the truth, uh, the reality that we just sung, sung, that you have met every need of ours. Uh, You've done so uh, more than we could have asked or imagined in Jesus. Um, Lord, in this passage that deals with the the reality of our discontent, the the problem of contentment, um, Lord, we ask that you would work in in our hearts by your Spirit even now. Um, Lord, help us to see the ways in which we are pursuing other things that aren't you, uh, looking to them for promises that they just can't live up to. Lord, we pray that Jesus would be our hope, that he would be our joy, that he would be our focus this morning and, Lord, every morning. And it's in his great name we pray. Amen. All right, I'm wondering if you have ever had this experience where seemingly out of the blue, this feeling of anxiety comes up and you pull out your phone because your phone has the solution to all of your problems, obviously, and you, and you start to do work on the problem that, that you've just sort of been made aware of only to find that you can't remember what the problem is. And so you're just sitting there with your phone stuck in your anxiety. Anyone else? I feel like that happens to me a fair amount, and unfortunately it's happening to me more and more as I am getting older. Now, it's one thing to to feel that problem acutely in a particular moment. You know, it's there and it's gone and it fades and you kind of move on with your day. But there's a reality that, that many of us can have a more chronic feeling that something is not right, that, that something needs to be fixed, but we don't really know what it is. Many of us walk around with a constant feeling of unease and discontent. In the 1830s, the French diplomat and philosopher Alexis de Tocqueville, and I'm sorry to any French speakers in the audience, um, that's the best that I can do, um, Alexis, Uh, on a journey to America, noted this. He said, There's a strange melancholy that haunts the inhabitants in the midst of abundance. And he notes, The incomplete joys of this world will never satisfy the human heart. And while he may have encountered a, a particular American manifestation of that discontent, the truth is, like, this is a universal problem. Every single one of us experiences it in one way or another. Right? It's hard to shake the feeling that something just isn't quite right. It is hard for us to accept what is. It's hard for us to accept reality as it comes to us. It is hard to be content. But... Paul assures us that in Christ, it actually is possible. And note, too, that Paul is writing this letter, writing about his own contentment, writing about his own experiences of joy and fulfillment while in prison, 
while sitting in a Roman jail cell. He is able to be content. He is able to rejoice despite his circumstances. Now, this isn't something he tells us that he is able to conjure up on his own. Instead, it requires the power of Christ at work in him. But Christ has worked, enabling him to be all right, whether in abundance or in need. So this morning, we are really going to focus in, we're going to close out our series on the book of Philippians by really focusing on verses 10 through 13 and the topic of contentment. And we're going to look at three things together. First, our deep longing. Second, what exposes our discontent. And third, the secret of contentment. So let's dig in first by looking at our deep longing. I want to start uh, in verses 10 and 11, so let's read together. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly because once again you renewed your care for me. You were in fact concerned about me, but lacked the opportunity to show it. I don't say this out of need, for I myself have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. All right, so what's going on in these verses? Well, Paul, who is in prison, has been given reason to rejoice. And why is it that Paul is rejoicing? Well, the Philippians have renewed their care for him, and that has taken the form of a gift sent to Paul by the servants, his servant Epaphroditus, a fellow servant in the gospel. It's not his servant, his co-laborer in the gospel, Epaphroditus. Now, ministers of the gospel then and now were, were dependent on the people they ministered to for their support. Now, Paul often engaged in sort of side works. He often, he had a side hustle. He was a tent maker. Uh, so as to not put undue burden on the people that he was trying to serve. But in a Roman jail cell, no such side hustles were available to him. And in the Roman jail system, there, there was no sort of guarantee of three hots and a cot. Right? They weren't taken care of. People were dependent on outside support entirely for their sustenance. They needed help for everything. So Paul, when receiving this gift, is receiving physical sustenance, the stuff that he needs in order to survive. So he is grateful for that gift. He says, I rejoice in the Lord greatly. He is happy. He is encouraged by their support, though not primarily because of the physical sustenance it provided, but because of what it showed about the Philippian church. Interestingly, in Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he references the Philippians and their generosity. So in 2 Corinthians 8, he writes this, We want you to know, brothers and sisters, about the grace of God that was given to the churches of Macedonia. Now, Philippi was a city in Macedonia, so it's this church uh, that's being referenced here. During a severe trial brought about by affliction, their abundant joy and their extreme poverty overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. I can testify that according to their ability and even beyond their ability of their own accord, they begged us earnestly for the privilege of sharing in the ministry to the saints and not just what we had hoped. And so they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us by God's will. So despite their poverty, despite their hardships, they are outdoing themselves in gifts of generosity. So Paul is elevating the Philippian church as an example. This is what it looks like to give generously. 
And he encourages the Corinthians to demonstrate similar generosity, writing in the next verses. Now, as you excel in everything, in faith, speech, knowledge, and in all diligence, and in your love for us, excel also in this act of grace. I'm not saying this as a command. Rather, by means of the diligence of others, I am testing the genuineness of your love. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So Paul rejoices in the gift of the Philippian church, again, not primarily because of the physical sustenance it provided, but because of what it showed about the genuineness of their love, both for Paul, but most importantly, for Jesus. And to establish this truth beyond the shadow—oh, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself here— Right, so the, the, the Philippian church excelled in, in following Jesus in this pattern. Right? Jesus, who though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. Now Paul goes on to explain in this gift that he's not primarily concerned about the physical sustenance. And to put this beyond the shadow of a doubt, he says in verse 11, I don't say this out of need, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I find myself. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. There's something a little bit jarring about that, isn't there? It's like, even beyond kind of the, the funny social, like, hey guys, thank you so much for your gift. I really appreciate it. Just so you know, I don't need it. Super nice of you, but I'm good. As someone who has tried to raise funds for various things, I can tell you, like, that is a terrible fundraising strategy. (laughs) But Paul doesn't care because Paul has learned how to be content in whatever circumstance he faces. We, generally speaking, have not. Humans are bad at being content. And Paul indicates this when he calls contentment a secret. One of the things that makes a secret a secret is that not many people know about it. And I think it's good for us to be honest with ourselves. We struggle to be content. I think especially living in a place like Orange County where you're constantly confronted with images of more. See, within each of us, there is an ache. There is a longing that nothing in this world is quite able to fill. The poet Wallace Stevens, in his poem Sunday Morning, wrote, But in contentment, I still feel the need of some imperishable bliss. I think about that. Even at our best, even when we're close to feeling content, when we're doing the things that we love, when we're in those moments that feel as though like things just couldn't get better, sometimes this realization comes in, where we, where we are confronted with the reality that this amazing thing isn't going to last forever. It's going to come to an end. There will be a day where we can't experience this joy any longer. Even at the height, we can be brought down, and it can feel like a dagger in the heart. And the reality is that perishable blisses only stir in us a desire for something imperishable. 
perishable blisses can arouse these feelings of, of joy, but they can't fulfill them. C.S. Lewis describes our internal ache in the problem of pain, writing, It is the secret signature of each soul, the incommunicable and unappeasable want, the thing we desired before we met our wives or made our friends or chose our work, and which we shall still desire on our deathbeds when the mind no longer knows wife or friend or work. While we are, this is. If we lose this, we lose all. What do we want? We want contentment. We want to feel as though we've arrived. And we want that feeling to remain, to endure. But it always seems to either elude us, or if we get it for a glimpse, it fades. And how do we typically respond to that? Well, we typically respond to that by throwing ourselves more deeply into various pursuits, thinking, right, if I can get this, if I can just make it a little bit farther, if I can have just a little bit more, then, then I'll be okay. This will be the ticket. But friends, that pursuit just ends up only really exposing the extent of our discontent. I want us to look one more time at verse 12, where Paul writes, I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I think that line, whether in abundance or in need, is, is instructive to us because I think it's both abundance and need that can show us where our hearts are really at, that can show us the extent of our discontent. The Norwegian playwright Henrik Ibsen in his play The Wild Duck uh, posited the idea that everyone has a life illusion. Right? It's a sort of pet illusion. It's the lie that leads us to believe that happiness can be found through earthly attainment. It's our animating pursuit, the thing that we go after with the idea that if I can get this, then it's all going to fall into place. He writes this, Rob the average man of his life illusion and you rob him of his happiness at the same stroke. This is what both abundance and need can accomplish. Now, as you've likely heard, uh, Matthew Perry, one of the stars of Friends, tragically died a few weeks ago at the age of 54. Um, there's a powerful column written about him by, um, by Patty Davis, who's the daughter of uh, President Ronald Reagan. And she identifies with Perry's struggles with addiction. She herself had a substance abuse problem for a number of years. Um, but in this article, she recounts an interview that Perry gave at the Los Angeles Festival of Books where he said this, Nobody wanted to be famous more than me. I was convinced it was the answer. I was 25, it was the second year of Friends, and eight months into it, I realized the American dream is not making me happy not filling the holes in my life. I couldn't get enough attention. Fame does not do what you think it's going to do. It was all a trick. Fame was Perry's life illusion. And when he obtained his heart's desire, when he had it in abundance, when he was more famous than he ever imagined he could be, he was miserable because fame couldn't hold up to its promise. 
He said there was a, a hole in his life that remained even after he got famous, and he went on in that interview to say, uh, not that, that's, he didn't say that, it's just in my notes here. He says, what's the answer to that? What was his answer to that? It was to drink and take drugs, fill that hole with something else. Now, thankfully, Perry saw the futility of that and, and uh, managed to get sober and spent much of his later years dedicated to helping other people overcome addiction. But his comments here in this interview are so powerful because they expose the lie that happiness is dependent on getting our heart's desire. And while probably very few of us have the ambition to become famous, we're no less pr prone to buying into various life illusions. Our illusions may be more humble in nature, but they are illusions nonetheless. They're still there. Right? How many times have you thought, once I get blank, then I'll be happy. Then I'll be able to rest. Right? Once I get the promotion once I get into a stable relationship, once we can buy a house, once we can buy a bigger house, once we can buy a bigger, bigger house, once we know that we're going to be able to move, once we know that we're finally going to settle down, then, right, then I'll be happy, then I'll be content. Or a big one, once I have a little bit more money, right? Once we're a little bit more comfortable, once we're not quite so strapped financially, when things aren't quite so tight. All right, but just ask John D. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? A little bit more. Uh, one, of my, one of my pastoral mentors, uh, this was someone uh, that I was really close to right before I, I started seminary. Uh, he was working with another pastor uh, who married a woman who came from uh, a degree of wealth that I can't even wrap my head around. Um, and as a result, this pastor and his family were set financially for life. And so my, my friend asked him at one point, like, what does it feel like to know that like, you never have to worry about money? And this pastor responded, uh, responded to him by saying, like, you don't understand the burden. Now, when my pastor friend told me that, I think my immediate response was like, I may not, but I'm willing to try. <laughs> um, but now, looking back, you're having more experience, encountering more and more people who have lots of money yet are not happy, are not content. I, 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 I don't have the same sort of attitude. Because abundance has a way of exposing our lack of contentment, as does need. Right, both getting the thing that we hoped for and finding it lacking, or on the other hand, realizing that we will never achieve our heart's desire. Right, both experiences can be crushing. Abundance and need both show us what our hearts are really set on. Now the danger for those of us who find ourselves somewhere in the middle, which is probably a good deal of us, right, not yet having reached the pinnacle or having hit rock bottom, the danger for us is that it's easier for us to hang on to our life illusions, for us to think, well, you know, the top is within reach, and once I get there, that's a dangerous place to be because it, it enables us to, to hang on to these things that won't satisfy for even longer. Achieving our dream, getting that thing, whatever that thing is, will not bring 
the contentment that our souls crave. So then, what does, what is the secret of contentment? Well, friends, the secret of contentment is not a thing. It is not a philosophy. It's not a list of steps. The secret of contentment is a person. How is Paul able to be content despite his circumstances? How can he both face abundance and need with joy? Well, he tells us. I'm going to read verses 12 and 13. I know how to make do with little, and I know how to make do with a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, Philippians 4.13 is a verse that many of us have heard, but we typically don't hear it in context. Right, it's, used as, it's often used as an assurance that, that we can win the big game. Right? We, can, we can close the deal. We can triumph in one way or another. But what this verse is actually telling us is that in Christ, and it takes the power of Christ in Christ, even if we lose the big game, even if we don't make the deal, even if we don't triumph, we can actually be content. We can find hope. We can find joy. We can find peace despite our circumstances. And friends, that often feels impossible. But in Christ, we can do all things. Jesus is the secret of contentment. A few weeks ago, we looked at Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11, where Paul goes through his list of credentials. Right? He, he shows us his life illusions, right? the things that are going to make him okay. And what does he have to say about it at the end of the day? Starting in verse 8 in chapter 3, I consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. Why is it that he can consider everything else a loss? Because of what he has discovered in Jesus, what he calls in Ephesians 3.8, incalculable riches in Christ. It's the assurance that, that he goes on to give the Philippians in verse 19, that God will supply all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. And why is it that Paul can say that with such certainty, with such confidence? It's because God has supplied every one of their needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus has taken on our greatest need on the cross. Right? The thing that we all want, the thing that we all crave is righteousness. Right? To be seen as good, to be seen as holy, to be seen as worthy. But this is something that we could never attain on our own. But Jesus came and lived the life that we couldn't live. He died the death that we deserve and he gives us his righteousness. And in doing that, he has supplied every single one of our needs. 
So in Christ, whether in poverty or in riches, whether in sickness or in health, in life or in death, we can know that we are going to be okay because we've been promised life, true life, everlasting life in him. Do you want that? Do you want that assurance? Do you want the contentment that goes along with that? I want, us, I want us to think a little bit more about exactly what is on offer here. What are the immeasurable riches of Christ? It is true, genuine, unconditional love. The love that's available to us in Christ is the love that sees you completely, knows everything about you and says to you, I'm not going anywhere. I will never leave you or forsake you. It's the love that rescues, you for your, uh, that rescues you from your sin. It's the love that stays on the cross, right? Despite the pain, despite the shame, despite the humiliation and the ridicule he faced there, his love caused him to stay there so that you could be free. And friends, it is the love that every single one of us was built for. The Christian philosopher James Smith writes this. He says, One of the distinguishing markers of the happy life found in God is a joy and delight that could not be achieved otherwise, a rest and contentment that stems from being found. And he goes on to quote St. Augustine, who concludes, and, and this quote from Augustine is written as a prayer. He says, The authentic happy life is to set one's joy on you grounded in you and caused by you. That is the real thing, and there is no other. It's the love that brings contentment and actual satisfaction. Now, something interesting, uh, the Rolling Stones came out with an album this year. Uh, it is the first album that, uh, of original material that they have produced since 2005, and at this pace, it is likely, it's, it's reasonable to assume that it will be their last album, uh, given that Mick Jagger is now 80 years old. Uh, now, one of their most famous songs, one of the, the Rolling Stones' most famous songs is the song Satisfaction. Uh, it was their first, uh, their first number one hit, and it propelled them to a whole new level of fame and success. Um, now, Satisfaction is kind of a, a funny name for the song because the whole point is how he, Mick Jagger can't get no satisfaction. Um, not for a lack of trying, mind you. He tries and he tries and he tries and he tries. <laughs> he can't get none. Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones became famous for singing about a lack of satisfaction. They, they became famous for singing about discontent. And you can see that discontent playing out throughout their lives and careers, even as they are internationally recognized, right? even as they achieve a level of fame and status, even as they earn more money than they could have ever imagined, than they know what to do with, they're not satisfied. And on this new album, it's called Hackney Diamonds, there's a song, it's one of the, the last songs on the album, and it's called Sweet Sounds of Heaven. And if you're not inclined to listen to the Rolling Stones, Lady Gaga is also on this song, um, as is Stevie Wonder. So it's a little something for everybody. Um, but in the song, Jagger, Jagger sings, again, now, now 80 years old, 
sings that he hears the sweet sounds of heaven. And in the chorus, there's this line. It says, eat the bread, drink the wine, because I'm finally, finally quenching my thirst. And most people recognize this as a, as a reference to communion. Now, the interesting thing is not speculating whether or not Mick Jagger has found Jesus. That is between Mick Jagger and Jesus. But I think it is really interesting that after years and years and years of experiencing all that the world has to offer, he still hasn't found the satisfaction that he's been looking for. And where, at age 80, does he think he might find it? And the sweet sounds of heaven, the bread and the wine. Nothing else is able to quench the thirst that we all have. And what does our thirst tell us? Well, C.S. Lewis explains in Mere Christianity, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger. Well, there's such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim. Well, there's such a thing as water. If I find, my, if I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove that the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. Friends, the real thing is Jesus. We were made for relationship with him and nothing else will satisfy. Nothing else will enable us to find the contentment that we all desperately crave. And his invitation to us, his invitation to you, is to stop and to receive his love, to receive his peace and joy, to receive his grace as a free gift, and to rest in him. Every other fountain will leave us feeling thirsty again. But Jesus says, whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. Do you believe that? Will you trust in him? Trust that he really is enough. And friends, I want you to take that into this week because this reality helps us to interpret all of our circumstances. Nothing that you face this week is able to crush you. Nothing that you don't get or do get and find wanting changes this reality. Jesus has saved you. He calls you his own. And that truth enables you to face everything else. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways in which it guides and directs us. We thank you for the truths it teaches us even when they are hard. Our Lord, we, we confess that we have a tendency 
to look to, to things in this world for a, a joy, a peace, a hope that nothing is able to provide apart from you. So Lord, we ask that you would help us to, to look to Jesus. Give us the wisdom and the courage and the strength to look to Jesus. Help us to find rest in him. We pray all these things in his name. Amen.